Hello and welcome to episode 33 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the dark confidant, Shane Beeps. Stan, I confidently want to tell you that I miss having you all in my house. It's been a sad, sad week. Just so alone without you all around. Yeah, it was kind of weird getting set up for recording today. It was like, I haven't been here in so long. I need to crowd around a microphone and an echoey little corner of my house and record every week with you guys. So let's get that those freaking flyer miles going. Also with us here in Chicago, it's the seasoned pyromancer, Zach Callahan. A dash of paprika, a sprinkle of salt, and a hint. Of, what is that? Cumin? It's me. <laughs> the zesty boy. Dave is out this week, but not forgotten. Sorry, Dave. We're going to have fun talking about mid-range without you. You just finished building the new version of Jun, too, and yet you decided <laughs> yeah. to take an absence this week. I didn't put that together. Yeah, he just got the run and sixes for it, and now he's not even here for it. On this week's episode, we break down the results and tournament data from the Modern Mythic Championship in Barcelona and the SCG Columbus Modern Open. Then we dive into Modern's original mid-range monster. The deck that killed Deathrite Shaman. It's Jund Week. Finally, we wind down with a listener question. But first, it's housekeeping. We are very happy to welcome some new patrons to the Dive Down Nation this week. Shoutouts go to Samantha M, Trevor D, Sean G, Michael V, Rick V, no relation, and Sparkling Pete. Thank you all so much for the support. And another shoutout goes to Vindu. I think that's the right pronunciation for leaving us a very nice review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. Yeah, awesome to see the super secret Slack channel and Dive Down Nation continue to grow. Um, another thing we forgot to mention last week um, was this newish Modern Streamers League, and they're entering their third week of broadcasting. This pretty cool league. It pits two teams of 10 streamers uh, up each against each other on Mondays and Wednesdays each week, and they're doing this for charity. Um, they're streaming the videos on Twitch, and I had the pleasure to be invited on last week to do some commentating, so you can check out those uh, VODs on Twitch and also on YouTube. Um, that was Wednesday of, of uh, last week. So it's going to be running through September 18th, and I think some of our other co-hosts are going to be appearing in some coming weeks. So you can find the Modern Streamers League at modernstreamersleague.com and also on Twitch um, slash Modern Streamers League, all one word. Yeah, I was able to catch the portion that Shane did, and it was really fun to see. There's a lot of really interesting people there, and one of the hosts has just an amazing radio voice. It's the, the, the baritone is out of this world, but it's really fun, and it's you know for a good cause, etc. So it's really exciting to see, and who knows, maybe even I might appear on a future episode. Yeah, Sean was awesome, amazing and awesome. He set me up with so many like easy to answer questions and really let me open up about the podcast. So, you know, mad props and mad shout outs to Sean and everyone involved in the production over there. It, they made it really easy and really fun. Yeah, and not just the roster of commentators is impressive, but also the roster of players they have in the Streamers League is is really great too. Former guest of the Dive Down, Gall is one of the streamers. Cat Light is on there. Sodek, Caleb, a lot of people worth worth watching. If you're into MTG coverage, if you're into watching streamers and Twitch, and if you care about modern, the Modern Streamers League is awesome and a really excellent resource. 
Yeah, super fun. We've talked about spider space on the show. They're there as well. A, a lot of, uh, honestly, I was surprised by how many names I knew just from being on this show. No joke. Yeah, and I gotta say, uh, Shane, you were a very, very impressive color commentator. Frankly, I think Marshall should watch his back. Marshall Sutcliffe, we're coming for you. Watch the throne, Marshall. Well, you know, he's the play-by-play guy, Stan. I mean, I was more, I tried to be, you know, more of like a Paul Cheon. I think I'm as good as analysis of of modern as Paul Cheon, I think. Maybe he should just be watching his back because clearly I know what I'm doing. Honestly, it was super nerve wracking. It was really challenging. (laughs) Watching a game and trying to like not say something really dumb was very stressful, but uh, it was was a blast. All right. Now Shane is going to pick back up from the news desk this week. He's been very busy covering a weekend of really important modern tournaments. Yeah. So starting with the breakdown here, we had uh, MC Barcelona. And honestly, we had a surprising amount of stats people were generating very quickly out of the data. And I loved it. So, you know, because we had the pairings uh, live, we had the results live. As soon as uh, Watsi was able to sort of release people's records, then people were able to sort of cross-reference it and give us some, some statistics based on things. So that was awesome. So on day one, I'm going to talk quickly about sort of the most represented archetypes in the field. And we had 21% Hogak, 98 of the 459 players were on Hogak, and then a huge jump down to the 10% Izzet Phoenix. It might be worth noting here that there's also later a 2% Hogak Dredge with seven people on it. So it might be more realistic to say that Hogak took 23% of the results and 106 or 105 of the decks. Which is more than the other category, right? The quote other category, meaning all of the decks that we don't mention as above 1% of the meta. Yeah. Um, People seem to have a pretty, it wasn't a huge diverse field. I mean, there was, of course, a number of decks, but people were, it was pretty top heavy. We had 10% is a Phoenix, as I mentioned, 9% Eldrazi Tron, 8% humans, 8% blue white control, 8% Jund, a huge showing for that deck. And then we had a pretty substantial drop down to 4% Tron, 4% Urza Thopter Sword, as they're calling it, or as we'll call it on this podcast, Urza. Also 4% Burn and Traditional Dredge. And then kind of some 2% of Modern Red Phoenix and the Hogak Dredge, as uh, Zach mentioned earlier. So um, Paul Chion said early on, too, that Leyline of the Void was the most played card in the entire tournament. That's a little bit concerning. Um and as we'll see, the impact of Leyline of the Void wasn't even that substantial based on the results. So one of the things I thought was interesting was pretty early on, Frank Karsten talked about the top 10 new cards. And those were being, I think he just referred to those as War of the Spark and uh, Modern Horizons. So we had Hogak, 422 main deck copies was, of course, the number one new card. Um, I'm not going to read all these out, but then Carrion Feeder, of course, 379 main deck copies. Um, one of the most interesting ones to me was Karn the Great Creator, was 259 main and one in the sideboard, the most popular War of the Spark card uh, by a good amount. And then, of course, we are seeing Force of Negation, Plague Engineer, Narset, Parter of Veils, Force of Vigor, Blast Zone, Renin 6, uh, Teferi Time Raveler. What did you guys think about these? So of all of the cards on this list, the one that actually surprised me the most was Blast Zone. So in part because 
while I do agree that this card is powerful and versatile and good, I feel like I haven't seen a lot of it in my own testing online or in paper. And sometimes hmm. when I've considered signing it into or putting it to sideboards or my main deck, like I just feel like I'm the only one in the room with the blast zone in their deck. Yeah, I've seen honestly an okay amount of blast zone online. I even tried it, but I run blood moon decks. So blast zone was not very good for me. And for an opponent, it didn't usually do anything and it doesn't blow up Chalice the void either. So I think it's good. But for my limited experience with my exact deck, it wasn't too good. I do believe it's a powerful card, though. Yeah, Blast Zone, I think, is honestly amazing. I'm not really surprised to see this many copies. It's just so flexible, and it sort of softly invalidates so many different kinds of strategies or really nerfs so many different kinds of strategies. Like, imagine running, like, you know, Bogles into a Blast Zone. Right, and the whole thing is it doesn't come into play tapped, right? Where in previous iterations or previous sets, it might have. So I think that's really what pushes it to this level of playability where you can play it and crack it right away. Oh, yeah. If you have the mana to do that, it, it's not cheap. Yeah, it, it is a little bit slow. It's a little bit, you know, it's not cheap to even activate or pump up, but it's just so flexible and allows you to take care of so many problems to permanence. So because, you know, day one of these MCs features three rounds of draft and five rounds of constructed, you know, we're not going to have the most clear data in the universe about day two conversion, but we do have quite a bit of good data uh, from this tournament. So after having the highest metagame percentage day one, Hogak had a 71.4% day two conversion rate. And I'm going to read uh, the decks that had more than 10 day one players that also had a very high conversion rate. So we had Burn and Eldrazi Tron with 66.7%. Is it Phoenix and Dredge with 64.6%. Blue White Control 63.2%. Jund 61.1%. Human 605 Mono Red Phoenix 60 And Tron and Wurza with a fairly meager 52.6% conversion rate. So, of course, this conversion data is kind of muddied by the limited rounds, but we'll have even more data about kind of the modern deck performance after we talk about the top eight. So we'll run down the top eight here, which is based on their final points, not on how they finished after the top eight. So first up with 38 points, Manuel Lenz with uh, Wurza. Yeah, this deck had two main deck of the three drop to fairy and a bunch of other Modern Horizons War stables. I really just feel like the Wurza deck has come into its own with obviously the printing of Urza and several other cards. I, I don't know if it's tier one, but it's definitely really up there. I think there is some leeway that Urza players have with some of the cards in their list. Um, I mean, full disclosure, I haven't done a ton of up close studying of the different Urza lists, but I have talked to a number of players and hearing even like other podcasts, including Jerry Thompson, talk about how like this list isn't exactly solved yet. There tends to be some delineations between players of the archetype. But I do think that Urza has become a staple in the strategy. Um, up next, we had uh, Varo Fernandez Torres with Hardened Scales. Yeah, this list was pretty basic or stock as far as it goes. Uh, they put up a pretty good fight, so no issue with that, but no new additions. Maybe that just speaks to the overall power level of the deck, where a card needs to be extra, extra good to make its way in, but what do you know? Yeah, then next was Sean Gifford with Aldrazi Tron. Looks like he had uh, four of the new War of the Spark Karn. Yeah, and the usual sideboard package that goes along with that. So do, do you guys feel like we're seeing kind of our early assessment of Karn in the Eldrazi strategies as being the best deck for this package? 
I think it's also really good in Mono Red Prison. I don't know if Eldrazi Tron is necessarily better, quote unquote. I think it's more heavily played. But I think any strategy that can stall the game out quickly or make big mana is good for the new card. For sure. Also, it doesn't dilute the sideboard as much as it can in other strategies where, you know, the sideboard for Eldrazi Tron is not that great in the first place. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. So after that, 37 match points, Torof Severin, the eventual winner on Mono Green Tron. And this list was nothing new. This was the ancient evil we have come to know and respect and fear. Why fix something that isn't broken? Or rather, was always broken. You know, when a, when a list like this... <laughs> <laughs> when a list like this wins, uh, this is this is what sparks the arguments. Like, you know, does the new car in the Great Creator belong in Tron? Is it uh, fine to just run the old stock list that has proven so powerful for so many years? Um, I mean, Severin in the games that I watched, and I, I watched a lot of the games he was playing, he was drawing well and playing well. And when mm-hmm. you get both of those going on with Tron, you're going to win a lot of Magic games. You know, there was multiple times when he, you know, sort of top decked, like, you know, the only card he could have top decked in right. one was a Ulamog and he peels it and just, you know, he was so infectious to watch his joy for the game and his general demeanor was, uh, you know, a welcome, you know, not change, but just a welcome sight to see in the competitive magic scene. Oh, I absolutely totally agree with that. And I am personally not a fan of Mono Green Tron. I have lost to it maybe more than any other deck. But I'd find myself like rooting for the opponent because I don't like Tron. But then like, oh, like what a nice guy. What a happy like and finding myself over time happy for him and wanting him to win just because of what a good personality and like what a good uh, on camera presence he was. Next up, David Mines on Jund. Hey, this is the episode. Thanks, David Mines. Giving us something to talk about. So we got three Tireless Tracker, one Bloodbraid Elf, four Red and Six, four Lily, two Main Deck Extraction, three Main Deck Trophy. (sighs) Jund. Man, what do they shave for all those extra extractions and trophies and you know trackers? That's a wild list. Bloodbraid elves for one. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Also, I think that's an interesting way to put it because I don't think Jun players think of it that way. I don't think they're shaving things. I think they they think, okay, I have these slots and what am I going to put in these slots? As opposed to other decks where you have a core and you're picking. Oh, we'll get into this later, but I, I, it's just interesting the way it's built. Yeah, looking at this person's list, he also has a Vraska Golgari Queen mm-hmm. in the main deck. Um, it looks like they're only down to two Fatal Push and two Thoughtseize. They do have four Inquisition, though. So, Yeah, with the life loss on everything, you just typically can't afford to run more. But again, we talk about all this in a little bit. So hold your horses, everybody who wants to hear us talk about Jund. <laughs> Up next, Juan Jose Rodriguez Lopez with Mono Red Phoenix. Had four of Lava Dart, four light up the stage, and a main deck, Blood Moon. Probably hoping to ca- catch some Eldrazi Tron, Jun players, not not looking for it. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm still under the persuasion that a turn three Blood Moon's a little late. But, hmm. you know, this person top eight a tournament, so who knows? <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting that they cut down to only one Bedlam Reveler. I don't know. I, I personally still feel like Bedlam Reveler has gotten kind of bad. I really enjoyed playing Season Pyromancer in that slot. And I wonder whether this player felt like the Blood Moon is a good replacement for one of the Bedlams. Sure. I mean, the, the Mythic Championship is definitely a narrower metagame, typically. So it's uh, you try to predict it, and I think you just try to hope to spike with your you know, tech choices. Yeah, and also just to clarify, uh, Juan had three main deck Lava Darts. Martin Mueller on uh, Hogak Bridgevine. 
Although there's no there's no bridge anymore, just Hogak Vine. So uh, Martin chose to run two main deck Leyland of the Void and two main deck Assassin's Trophy. I propose we call this deck Hog Vine until it's gone. That's both fun to say and a good name, in my opinion. I think it's funny that they essentially have just decided on just calling it Hogak. Just plain old Hogak. Yeah, uh, I mean, Vegivine's part of the deck too. Like, it's the whole thing is like, if you don't have the Hogak, sometimes you swing with three, four threes, and that's usually good enough, and you usually do it pretty early yeah, too. Pretty good. Pretty good. And then uh, our, our last top eight player uh, was Zhang Zhang. Please forgive me if I pronounce that wrong. Uh, they were also on Jund. Yeah, one season Pyromancer main, back to four Bloodbraid Elf, and two main deck Maelstrom Pulse. Wow. Pulse is a nice catch all. And again, we'll talk about that a little bit later. So as I mentioned earlier, the winner was uh, Torolf Severin on Mono Green Tron. He defeated Varro Fernandez Torres on Hardened Scales. So we've observed in the last month as podcasters and format analysts that Mono Green Tron like practically vanished from the meta. And we on the show kind of speculated that perhaps it was having a really hard time with the Hogak matchup specifically. But the data that was collected at the Mythic Champ basically had Tron favored with an almost 53% matchup against Hogak. So I wonder if the problem was specifically Bridge from Below that made that matchup so hard for Tron previously, if that was in fact the case. Oh yeah, I 100% think so. Because one of the ways that you defeat Tron is combo. Combo decks can typically get their game plan set up and their combo executed before Tron has the chance to do anything powerful. And even if they like landed a powerful card like a Worm Coil Engine or something like that, you know, the next turn you just untap and combo off then. So it doesn't really matter. So removing that powerful combo engine from the deck just makes it a very fast creature deck. And there's lots of ways that Tron has to deal with creatures and go over the top of those kind of decks. I totally agree. And to compound what Shane's saying, Tron doesn't have a lot of good ways to deal with bridge when it's in the graveyard. They don't have that many creatures that they can have go to the graveyard to get rid of it, and they don't have a lot of ways to interact with the graveyard, especially with no current. Well, so, what about Relic? Sure. And like, I mean, there's the, only like a two or three of them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Decks do run Relic, but there are, I mean, as someone who used to run Relic and Scred, it's a one time activation, right? So there are times you pop it and then they find, just do it anyway. It's not continuous effect. So you do get them off of it once, and maybe you get one or two Veg Vines or a Hogak or whatever, but they'll, the engine's so consistent that they'll get there again. So I think that with with this hard to interact with, very good piece removed, now Tron can interact, right? Now O-Stone is actually very good as opposed to mm-hmm. just, eh, well, they're going to get back there because Bridge is still there. Sure. I mean, but we did see that, you know, Frank, so Frank Karsten, a Channel Fireball data guy extraordinaire, he did some early tweeting on some data over the weekend, and he said that Hogak had a very high win rate of 56.2% in non-mirror matches. We're still waiting on some more full data from the tournament. I'm really excited to see that. That wasn't ready for tonight's recording, but um, hopefully this week we can learn some more. Yeah, I saw some other data that a person on Twitter by the name of Liam underscore MTG tweeted that Hogak, not only was it 21.5% of the constructed decks, they kind of, this person looked at its percentage among the decks with six, seven, or eight plus wins. So in that category, six plus wins, Hogak was almost 30% of the decks. Seven plus wins, it was over 30, and eight plus wins, it was 45%. Oh, yeah. It's it's bad news. Yeah. I mean, really, I mean, decks that went seven, three or better 
it's Hogak was in 72 of those decks, 39% of them, right? And the, the next the next one of the seven or three or better decks was Is a Phoenix with 12.5% of those decks. So it's just, you know, an overwhelmingly positive performance at the MC, even in the face of Leyland of the Void being the most po- like commonly played card across all decks, right? And some of the other decks we saw in terms of the seven, three or better. So we have Jund, Wurza, and Aldrazi Tron. That was 8.3% of that sample size. Humans was 5.5% of that sample size. Blue White Control was 4.2, and Tron and Mono Red Phoenix were 2.7. Again, that percentage is of the seven or three or better decks, of which there were 72, just to give us thinking about um, the modern portion only without the um, limited events to kind of skew the data about what we're caring about here. And one of the things I wanted to talk about, um, and then we can do a little bit of kind of you know breakdown analysis on it, guys, was the SEG Columbus because we had the SEG Columbus Modern Open, not a team event that allows us to get some good data uh, to see what a non-mythic championship event in metagame looked like. Right, because so many players that played Hogak did poorly in the limited portion for Barcelona. We see what happens when Hogak is a straight taken to a straight modern tournament, right? Because mm-hmm. there's more than spoiler, there is more than one Hogak in this top eight. Yeah, so we we had the day two counts as we usually get from SEG. We don't really get the day one data, so we can't talk about conversion rates here. But of the sixty eight players, we had thirteen Hogaks, ten Aldrazi Tron, seven Humans, six Jund, five Mono Red Phoenix, and then a number of uh, other decks below that. You know, the typical one that we'd expect at this point is the Phoenix, Amulet Titan, Green Tron, Burn, Wurza, and then a number of other decks. Uh, just one copy. So our top eight is a full four Hogak decks, right? 50%. 50%. (laughs) But first place, just like it was at uh, MC Barcelona, was Mono Green Tron. So congratulations to Dominic Harvey taking down the open with this classic deck. Again, not running the Karn the Great Creator wishboard package. One thing I thought was interesting on the sideboard was these three Veil of Summers. Right. And four Leyline of the Void in the sideboard. So Veil of Summer, if you don't remember, it's just a single green instant that allows you to draw a card if your opponent has cast a blue or black spell this turn and makes your spells unable to be countered this turn. And your you and permanents you control gain hexproof from blue and black until end of turn. So it's a powerful, yeah, it's a lot of text. It's very powerful for a single green. I think it's a very interesting uh, inclusion, especially in a metagame where you might be expecting a lot of blue-white control, a lot of Jund, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, any any deck that's casting blue or black spells, you're going to probably enjoy having that in your deck. Um, so then our second place deck was Hogak, and I'm not going to talk about these decks individually. All four of the, the top eight Hogak decks were essentially the same. They kind of have the Seder Wayfinder engine going and not the the Crab engine. But there are some different tech choices with things like maybe a lot of troll or two to enable discarding, maybe fatal pushes instead of lightning axes and things like that. But by and large, this engine is pretty streamlined right now. Third place Hogak, fourth place is Phoenix with no surgicals in the 75, uh, just three Ravenous Trap. Um, Hogak fifth, Mono Green Tron in sixth. This one has the Wishboard package this time. And uh, seventh place Hogak, eighth place Wurza. So given all this data we have, all these results we have from these two pretty big tournaments, guys, I have some questions for you all. You know, was was Hogak simply just not needing the bridge this entire time? Like, you know, we saw all these Leyland of the Voids around this weekend. The deck still did really well. 
I would say that it probably did need the bridge because as we saw, it was still very put up really good results, but Tron still won. So I think that in a world with the bridge, I think Hogak wins. Like, I think the story is that Hogak dominates and now that's sort of pushed back because Tron did win. But overall, I think Hogak is still powerful, maybe not quite as quote unquote busted as before, but it's still consistent and still good. Yeah, I mean, now it's just a more interactive deck, which I think is what R&D wanted, or at least what they claimed they wanted when they made the ban announcement. It could still be overpowered, you know, even if it is, quote, more interactive. Yeah, absolutely. But I also think it's week one or two of this new deck, and maybe, you know, in the pro community, they knew what to expect, but maybe there wasn't adequate time for testing against this, and perhaps we'll see you know, as more players kind of adapt to where the meta is at after this weekend, we'll see more answers, more decks that can beat up on it. I'm just not sure that there are a lot of, you know, decks and answers that can beat up on this. If we're seeing the best silver bullet that people can bring in is Leyland of the Void right now, it's able to win through that simply because the existence of, of very cheap hate cards, right? And I was surprised that some decks that could potentially combo around it, like Devoted Druid Strategies or something like that, were nowhere to be seen. Maybe just because the removal that Hogak is now able to run can just you know eat that one important creature combo card and the deck's not able to function in time for to avoid being beat down. It's funny to think about a world where banning bridge freed up slots in Hogak, so now they can run removal instead of the bridges they ran before. Yeah, exactly. Or they're running main deck ley lines themselves. Yeah, exactly. The mirror. I mean, I do not want to talk about the B word already, but this is a deck that is a ridiculous percentage, ridiculous conversion rates. It's, you know, there's some stats from Saffron Olive talking about how it was, you know, doing better and being more pre- present than the Eldrazi decks were during the Oath of the Gatewatch um, Mythic Championship. And I don't think that it's going to be emergency banned, but I think we have, what, four weeks until the next BNR announcement. And I really wouldn't be surprised to see something else come out of this deck and they might just have to say you know hogak was a mistake yeah time will tell maybe, maybe it's benchvine maybe maybe it is maybe yeah. the, maybe they just really don't want to roll back on hogak but what it does is it cheats on mana in two ways right you know it has not only delve but convoke and when you make a creature that big with trample that cheats on mana in two separate ways that have already proven to be broken in the form of delve ugh. Yeah, I mean, we can only say so many times in this podcast that we think Hogak is probably too good for modern, right? Yeah, no need to beat that drum anymore. But what do you guys think about Wurza? Do you think that's kind of a new big player in the metagame? I've said before that I think the War of Invention decks are very good, and I'm going to reiterate the point I've made on a past episode. I think they're really good, but very hard to play and require like a really intense like knowledge of sideboarding, what to include, what meta to expect. So I think that it's daunting and like it's not the sort of thing I think you could pick up before a tournament and learn. I think you'd probably have to spend like a good, seriously, a good amount of months learning the deck and getting ins and outs before you would feel ready to take it to a big tournament like this. That's my personal opinion. Mm -hmm. Zach, I totally agree with you. I feel like Wurza, having talked to players who pilot it, Mm -hmm. almost has a learning curve similar to control. Absolutely. You know, once you pick it up, you know, you know what the cards do, and I guess you know it's in your 75, but figuring out what is best used where is really the hard part with decks like this. And 
basically just to reiterate, like you really have to be committed to getting good at this strategy. And I think you have to be committed to being flexible sometimes week to week with exactly the count of cards that you put into your deck and your sideboard. Absolutely. I talked about how hard it was to make decisions with Karn. And this is just sort of that all the time nonstop. So very difficult to play. I wouldn't be surprised to see more of it in the future, though. All right. That takes us out of the breakdown very nicely. We're going to take a very quick break. And when we return, we are going to dive into Jund, the red, black, green, muddy pool beneath us. Stay with us. The Matriarch of Midrange. Jund, at its core, is a variety of efficient costed cards that ideally look to two-for-one the opponent or outvalue them in some fashion. Whether it's Planeswalkers like the classic Liliana of the Veil or the newcomer Renin Six. Heck, even creatures like Bloodbraid Elf or just plain old activated abilities, Jund wants to grind out value and eventually run the opponent out of resources before finally making some big swings or some little pings for that last bit of life that your opponent might somehow still have. (laughs) Right, so when people talk about Jund, or the deck Jund, they're talking about a red, black, and green modern deck that plays a mid-range strategy. So you're destroying creatures with removal early on, you're disrupting your opponent's hand with Thoughtseize and Inquisition to Kozilek, and then eventually you're going to, after you've removed their threats and you know punched a hole in their hand, you're playing your creature, your planeswalker, and then writing the value that creates to victory. Yeah. Um, one of the things I think is interesting, y'all, is that there's really just not a stock list for Jund, right? You mentioned this earlier, Zach, is that there's just such a large pool of powerful playable cards in the, in the modern format, and especially in the Jund colors, that it has access to so many different cards and so many different configurations. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the thing is also that Jund is a really popular deck, and I think a lot of people play it. And there's a really vibrant online community about it. And I think that there's, once again, so many playables, and people are so open to talking about what they're playing, what they're having success with, that I feel like they're even local, there are Jund metas in a certain way, because there's so many Jund players at a store even. Yeah, so compared to a deck like Is It Phoenix is one that I'm very familiar with. It has maybe four flexible slots in the main deck. Playing Jund and looking at Jund lists over the last week or so felt like there were 20 flexible spots in the main deck and practically nothing was sacred. You know, sometimes they have four Lily, sometimes they go down to three, sometimes they even go down to two. Sometimes they play four Bloodbraid Elf, sometimes they just play one. Right. Outside of basically, I feel like Tarmogoyf in the discard package, really the numbers get really open. Like I've seen lists with three, two bolts and, you know, up on fatal pushes, etc. It's The whole thing with this deck is... So what's interesting about Jun, which differs from other decks we've talked about, you know, say humans or dredge, is that there's not a core set of cards for the deck. There's not, okay, so you're really running these 40, you know, 54 cards, and you have this amount of room to play with. It's really, here's a mana base, even that's up for debate. And here are, it's more, there are general categories of cards that the deck wants to fill, right? Oh, for sure. 
And one of the things I think is interesting too is now that there's even more options in Modern Horizons, there's just so many cards that this deck has option to options to run. And a stock list in quotes will have you know will change one week to the next because Jund essentially needs to be able to respond to shifts in the meta, especially with what the proactive decks are trying to do and what the proactive deck of the week might be. Yeah, so Modern Horizons gave, what, like eight or more new cards to this deck? Yeah, I think that's one of the big reasons that we're talking about this deck this week, right? Is that, you know, Jun's back. It's back in a big way. It's running with a, a better than 50% win rate recently. Um, you know, it's it has... Like you said, Stan, these eight new cards on Horizons, there's things like, you know, we have things from sideboard creatures like Collector, Oof, and Plague Engineer, to powerful Planeswalkers like Renin Six, to, you know, main deck creatures like Season Pyromancer, to Cycling Lands and Horizon Lands. Right. So, you know, it's it's a perfect time for us to to revisit one of the classics of the format. Jund has been around forever. Um, at one point, it was one of the most powerful decks in the format. It slowly dwindled down to to be not one of those, and now uh, it's a great time for Jund heads to be playing the deck. Uh, they're called Jundies, for what it's worth. <laughs> oh, okay. Jund is one of those decks that was a such a powerful standard deck that you almost just ported it right over to modern. And the the raw power of because the whole thing is it's there's no theme to it. It's these are black, green, and red cards that are all very good. I'm not trying to be synergistic. I'm not trying to do anything wild. These are just all very good cards that are also very good together. Yeah. So the core of Jund can essentially be broken down into three categories. You've got your creatures, planeswalkers, removal, um, and disruption is kind of in between those because it can both operate as removal or it could be tacked onto a planeswalker ability. Mm-hmm. And each of these categories has a litany of playables that can fit into what Jund is trying to do. So we're today going to focus on the cards that see the most consistent play in Jund post Modern Horizons. And if we don't mention a specific card uh, that you think does Jund, and and sometimes people do use the word Jund as a verb. Oh, they absolutely do. It's not our judgment on that card's playability, but more so a reflection on where the Jund lists have been lately and uh, the resources we've been looking at as we studied for this episode. Yeah, so we're going to do our usual here. We're going to try to go a little bit in detail on each of these cards, like sees play in the decks. So if you know these cards, um, forgive us, but we want to provide a good baseline of information for people who might not be that familiar and give people who are newer to the format, you know, the deep dive that the dive down is known for from time to time, at least. Glub glub babies. So start with creatures and we're talking about Tarmogoyf. So Goyf is one in a green. For an X, X plus one creature. And X is the number of different types of cards in all players' graveyards. And in modern, this typically results in a four power, five toughness creature fairly quickly because you're going to have lands, creatures, instants, and sorceries quickly entering graveyards, especially combined with Jun's hand disruption. What do y'all think about Tarmogoyf? Okay, I have never played Jun before we started working on this episode. I had never cast a Tarmogoyf until yesterday. All right? (laughs) And I got to say, I can't believe that this is how I felt about this deck, but I do not like Tarmogoyf. And not because I think the card is bad, 
but I think it really speaks to my interests as a magic and modern player. Mm. And, and in some ways, this affected my enjoyment of the deck because Tarmogoyf is kind of like one of the poster children of Jund. But mm-hmm. I mean, if it taught me one thing, like casting big green monsters just isn't where I like to be as a modern player. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to say just as, you know, the anti-devil's devil's advocate is, I think you're a little bit crazy. I mean, how can you not like resolving Tarmogoyf? It's like the original value beater. I mean, just for one of the green, you can have a, a, an easy four or five. Stan only wants creatures if they fly or are wreathed in flame. Yeah, or they bounce on an opponent's entire board. Or they give a instant or sorcery in my graveyard flashback. Wreath in flame. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons that Tarmogoyf isn't as cool to you, I think, now, Stan, is that it's getting a little bit outclassed. I mean, and and then there's a removal that takes care of it fairly cleanly. When Fatal Push got printed, it really made Tarmogoyf less powerful than it used to be. But what Tarmogoyf does really well is it's an all-around game ender. You know, if you have a Tarmogoyf on a battlefield with, you know, five or six different types of cards in the graveyard and the opponent's just top decking, hoping to get some removal to clear that goif off the board, you can really quickly close things down. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know what Stan's talking about because I love Charmogoyf so very much. I'm sorry, Stan, but you had to dry like <laughs> okay. that. It's all right. I like other big, beefy green monsters. I think Primeval Titan's cool. It's just Tarmogoyf felt boring. Oh, yeah, it is. I, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean... The whole thing about, I think, Jund in general is why it's different, because there, there's not a theme, there's not a cohesiveness. It can feel a little, quote-unquote, boring at sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not a dig on the power level. It's not a dig on anything about the deck, aside from, like, the theme is just good cards, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it can make a deck a little less interesting than a deck like Spirits or Humans, where there's also a shared art direction as well. So when you're looking at a deck like that, there's a more cohesive art style. You kind of get the cards fit together. Jund is just, you know, oh, action scene. Big monster, sexy man, you know, what is it? But in general, I liked Goyf, good, efficient beater. I got instantly hated out by graveyard hate. I saw some main deck relics and voids that were just like, oh, wow, my my Goyf's down now. Like, oh, bummer. But overall, I liked him. It was really good. I was able to do some cool combat tricks where I assassins trophied an opponent's enchantment during the combat step, and Goyf got two points of power bigger. So, hey, that's the thing. Continuing down the creature suite, we have maybe one of the Third newish, fourth editions. I guess it's been over. Is it over been a year since Bloodbraid Elf has been on? Oh board? yeah, oh yeah. Time flies. So Bloodbraid Elf. If you're unfamiliar, two, a red and a green for a three-two haste creature with Cascade. So Cascade is when you cast the spell, you start revealing cards from the top of your library until you hit a non-land spell that has a converted mana cost lower than the spell you cast. So in this case, three CMC or lower, and then you play without paying the mana cost and you ignore casting restrictions as well. So if you uh, are able to play it during combat or something, you're able to play a sorcery reveal off of it. So I love this card. Personally, a very big fan. As I mentioned on the podcast before, when this got unbanned, I made Scred Red Green to play literally this card. It <laughs> overperformed for me. I loved it. The haste is amazing. People don't expect it. Haste isn't a super played ability in modern. And the ability to take a planeswalker out of nowhere is super good. And even times when I would play her and flip over, say, a Tarmogoyf, I'm fine with that. That's a blocker I have now. I don't regret swinging. I mean, Floodbraid Elf is just the original two-for-one in Jund. You know what I mean? It's just, it's a de facto two-for-one because you're getting a second spell off it. Yeah, I was absolutely impressed with this card. I was pretty much always happy to cast it. It is a hard card to cast sometimes because you don't know what you're going to get off of it. Uh, One game I cast it, my opponent asked me, what are you hoping it finds? 
which really shifted my thinking about Bloodbraid Elf. Um, and the delta from the floor to ceiling can be massive because sometimes you're casting it and you really want a removal spell or you want an additional threat. And not having that amount of control over what's in your library can make Bloodbraid Elf like sometimes feel like a miss, even though the power level is massive. Yeah, I think that Bloodbraid Elf is one of the cards we see the highest variance in quantity right now, I think. And I think the reason for that is that the your quantity and reliance on Bloodbraid Elf as one of your main creatures impacts your deck building so much because you really don't want to be seeing something like a late game hand disruption spell off that cascade trigger. Um, you don't want to see something like an unearth, which, you know, maybe I think was tested in Jund, but I think just the the value of it wasn't really there. And I think those are the type of cards that you have to say, well, if I hit this off a of Bloodbraid Elf, how valuable is that to me? Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I I do wonder, I, I personally found that every time I hit a hand disruption spell, I didn't mind it, and it was fun to take away something from the opponent's hand. I, I wonder if I, I was also casting these on turn four, obviously, so that changes my opinion of it a little bit. Sure. But, but I do wonder that in a, if a in a meta where a deck like Tron or Blood Control is good, where they are have a handful of cards, is a turn six Bloodbright Elf hitting a Thoughtseize bad? Not necessarily. I mean, it's just one of those things where, like, like Stan mentioned, is there is variability built in and so that's why it does work so well in jund though is that each card is pretty uniquely powerful on its own but some are less powerful than the others so moving on the next big creature that's very important to jund strategies is called scavenging ooze oh yeah i'm sure many of you know it in case you don't one in a green for a two two that has the text green exile a target card from a graveyard if it was a creature card, put a 1-1 counter on Scavenging Ooze, and you gain one life. Yes, so good. Yeah, so this card is both an answer and a threat, right? Sometimes people are bringing it out of the sideboard. Jun gets to play this main deck. Really great against decks like Phoenix or Dredge, where you need to use instant speed interaction to sometimes deal with some of the big threats in your opponent's graveyard. I think it's also worth noting that a deck like Jund can just run this in the sideboard if they want. There's other two drops, and that just speaks to the versatility of the deck, where if you don't have to run this main if you don't want to, there are other two drops that it can run, but it's just a solid card for the deck either way. Yeah. Right now, Scavenging Use is especially powerful, and you're going to see it probably right. as a three of because there's so much graveyard shenanigans going on. But really, Scavenging Use can be slow to get going. Because, you know, sometimes against like a lightning bolt deck, you really don't want to play it out until you can tap two more green mana to grow it out of lightning bolt range. And, you know, but eventually it really can take over a game and close the game down rather quickly, growing out of hand. It is worth noting that for the creature's activated ability, the cost is only green, not exiling the creature. So if you target with its ability, it can still be exiled out of the graveyard and the scoos won't grow and it won't gain a counter. So you can get got that way. Yeah, totally how that happened to me, for sure. I will say, I also kind of found sometimes that this was a, you know, a reasonably challenging card to plan for because, you know, I, I think we're going to get into this in more detail, but Jund has a very greedy mana base, and mm -hmm. sometimes it can be unclear on what colors or what cards or what lands you're supposed to be fetching for because you don't always know what you'll be able to cast in a few turns. And Scooze is like a great example of that. Like you have to prioritize fetching for green mana so you can activate that uh, very important green ability. For sure. Um, up next, we have Dark Confidant or Bob. Uh, one in the black for a 2-1 wizard. At the beginning of your upkeep, you reveal the top card of your library. 
and put the card into your hand and you lose life equal to the converted mana cost of that spell. So this is one of the original Jund powerhouses, but it's really seeing a little bit less play lately. So is this the episode where we pour one out for Bob? Because I think this card is dead or dying. Man, you and I, I have to ask why. Why do you think this? I mean, I just see a bunch <laughs> of absurd, absurd card advantage, and a, it's a must-answer threat in a Jun deck. The reason I feel like this is is threefold. A, I think answering it is easier than ever, especially where the meta's at right now. There's so many cards that deal one damage to any target, including Run and Six, Lava Dart, Gutshot, etc. Sure. I think to compound on Shane's comment, I. You're right, it's a must-answer threat in Jund. But I think Jund's at a point where every threat is a must-answer threat in Jund. I, I think it's... Also, you kill a Charmagoyf on site. Also, you kill a Skuz on site. Also, you kill a Planeswalker on site. Sort of thing where I think you're right, and Stan makes a good point that it is easier to kill. And I think that does affect it. But I, I don't think its ability as quote-unquote a lightning rod is much different than any of the cards Jund plays. Permanence that Jund plays, that is. Okay, Stan, so what are your B and C there? Yeah, B is the fact that I think it can be a liability sometimes because the format is fairly aggressive right now and Bob will lose you games a non-zero amount of times. It can be really hard playing multiple Bobs. Sometimes you play, you know, one or two Bobs and you have to use your Ren and Six to kill it just so that you stay out of lethal range. And I feel like that's a place that is too vulnerable for where you want to be in a modern deck. But I don't think that's a new problem for Bob. I mean, it's always been a problem for Bob is that it hurts you, right? But it's the fact that Jund wants that card advantage and wants those resources in hand that at some point, you know, the, it's not really a liability any longer. Or it eats some removal, or like you said, or even you kill it yourself and, and you, you got four cards of value out of it. Yeah, so I ended up playing uh, two leagues online and one league in paper. I borrowed a, a deck from friend of the show, Jesse, so thank you for that. But in her list, did not run any, any bobs in paper, but I did play the bobs online, and they did help me win a game against Phoenix, where I got the Assassin's Trophy by digging deeper to kill an Aria, and that eventually allowed me to stabilize and win. But I didn't miss them that much. The deck I played in paper ran Tireless Tracker in its slot, and this is a hot take, but I think it might be better. All right, Sam, before I interrupt again, give us your third point. All right, third point. I feel like Bob presents a deck building restriction because he kind of incentivizes you to play an above average number of lands. And as a result, I found that Jund can have some really nasty top decks when you need a threat or an answer, and then you just end up finding another land. See, I, I have to disagree with that one because like the mathematics on having, like, say, two more or two fewer lands in a deck like Jund um, is not that substantial on the average converted mana cost on something that you'll turn over with the Bob, right? I mean, I think they can have some feel-bads, but I think largely I'm not going to really agree with the fact that, like, you know, I want to run more lands because I'm running Dark Confidant. I think it's, it def- definitely wants to, you don't want to run a lot of four mana spells or something like a Tassiger, right? Because, you know, that's going to feel extremely bad to turn over. But I think that, you know, over the over the 60, car- 60 cards in your deck that, you know, you're not going to say, well, I'm going to flood out because I ran Dark Confidant. I feel like I flooded out because I ran Dark Confidant. Maybe <laughs> yeah. you're right where it's one of those things where it just feels so bad that it's ingrained in my memory. 
I mean, I, I ran a list without any Dark Confidant in my testing, and it was one of the cards I missed most. I didn't have oh, any in the 75. I, I was constantly feeling resource-starved. You know, my human's opponents were drawing a ton of cards off their Horizon Lands. They were, you know, flipping cards off of their Militia Buglers. And I was just sitting I was just sitting there saying, like, man, I, I hope that um, my answers line up with all these threats they keep pulling. How do they have four cards in their hand? And I've got one. Well, Shane, that kind of brings to mind a fourth point for me, whereas I almost feel like Jund is somewhat outmoded now. Part of that has to do with cards we're going to talk about, but Renin 6, Seasoned Pyromancer, and the lands that Jund got help you get through your deck in a way that Bob used to. Yeah, tell us about Seasoned Pyromancer, Stan. We've only mentioned this card like three times in the past four weeks, but I love it so much. It was much. my name in this episode. It was my intro name. That's how much we talk about it. <laughs> It's. I think it might be one of my favorite cards from Modern Horizons. One red red for a 2-2 human shaman. A very handsome shirtless fella. Oh yeah. When Seasoned Pyromancer enters the battlefield, discard two cards and draw two cards for each non-land. You discard, you generate a 1-1 red elemental token. So I firmly believe this is one of the absolute best three drops in Modern, period. Top five, no doubt. Yeah, I think it's t- kind of tied with Blood Moon, I would say, maybe. There's Blood Moon, then this card for red three drops that I want to play. Anger of the Gods. There's a pantheon of very strong shirtless men on cards that are together right now for red three drops. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's super good. I mean, I think the double red does put a strain on Jun's mana base. Oh, absolutely. Uh, typically, typically, the only other double red spell, especially at the, just a three CMC, was going to be Anger of the Gods. Um, but it just does so much for the deck, right? It lets you discard spells to generate creature tokens, you know, things that might not be useful. Like if you're holding some fatal pushes against blue-white control, you just want to be able to go wide and let their point removal be less valuable. Absolutely. I played against an opponent that was able to get a ley line of sanctity out and then hexproof. So I played a turn three pyromancer and discarded two hand disruption spells and then drew two pieces of removal for creatures. And it felt really good. There you go. That sounds great. I unfortunately didn't have any great situations where I got to discard dead spells to Mm -hmm. Spyro. I often felt like I was just discarding extra lands that I kept picking up to the point that, you know, compared to my experiences with him in either Mono Red Phoenix or the Skelemental deck where I was discarding cards for value, there weren't as many cards that I got to discard for any reasonable value with Pyromancer. Um especially in games two and three, where I'm kind of taking out the dead cards and bringing in all the relevant sideboard cards. I wonder if that just might be your sample size of games. Because if you like him that much and you've seen what he's done in other decks, I think it was more that you happen to flood out as opposed to an issue with the deck. I do think that Jund floods out more than other decks because of the high land counter does run. In like, that's one of those things probably where it happens two out of every you know two percent or three percent more than other decks but you just feel it more and it feels like you internalize it more but those you know to those 24 25 lands is real moving on plague engineer as a new addition this is mostly run in sideboards but people main deck it as well this is just a card that is putting up big results in jund in my opinion so if you're unfamiliar with the card two and a black for a two two creature with death touch and when it enters the battlefield you choose a creature type and creatures of that type that your opponents control Get minus one, minus one. This card, this GD is card, so so good. I mean, I I I love it, but I hate it because I think it might be a little bit 
too powerful. And no. when I say that, I don't, I, I don't care. I'm not okay. I'm not saying that it's like a broken card. I'm not saying that it's like a bad card. I'm saying that it might be bad for the format because it kind of invalidates or really hamstrings a number of strategies, maybe a little bit too easily. Like let's like I mean I've been bringing this up lately in our in our Slack. I think that Obzon was used to be a natural predator against Jund, right? Be- especially because of lingering souls. Uh, you know, you're able to really invalidate their their one for one removal, go wide with lingering souls tokens, and incrementally outvalue Jund. Lingering Souls tokens are a joke against the playing engineer. I mean, even if like you're able to have some point removal for it once it resolves, I mean, you're still going to lose a bunch of Souls tokens. I think you have a point that's good against Lingering Souls, but I don't think shutting down Lingering Souls is that like broken of a thing to do, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I mean, I, that, that's just an example of like a strategy it might invalidate that would be some kind of response to, say, a, a 9% Jun metagame, right? So that just sort of takes an answer off the table. And it also hurts tribal strategies, which weren't exactly super strong besides humans right now. And we still see humans doing a pretty good job in the meta. This is a card that's good against Prison, my deck of choice. It deals with the goblin tokens made by my goblin makers. But even then, I I view this card in a positive way. I think it is a positive safety valve on the format. I think that if you get if it if it happens to force lingering souls out of the format, I don't care. But I don't know. It's very good. I like it. It won me a game against Boggles for sure, where I could resolve it, name Beast, and you can't play Boggles anymore. So pretty good. So on the one hand, I do agree with Shane. Because this is a card that I think really beats up on some of the decks and strategies that used to have game against Jund. You know, in the past, I've had success playing go wide strategies against Jund. And if you're making a board full of one ones, Plague Engineer will just five for one you. But on the other yeah. hand, playing Jund, this card was amazing out of the sideboard. Right. I brought it in for almost every matchup. Sometimes I'd bring it in even if I didn't have like a great creature type to name just because a death touching body that could potentially win combat because of its static ability felt insanely powerful. The only matchup I did not bring it in for out of the 15 games I played was no joke ad nauseum. I brought it in for every other one of the 14 matches. Yeah, I think that's why it's fair that people are even starting to main deck at at least one of because yeah. it's just very flexible. The death touch gives it almost a you know a easy two for one ability if it clears out some X one. MTG Finance, get your plague engineers. I mean, it's already gone up a decent amount for sure. The ship has sailed, um, but it's going to go further outland, so you're going to really need to buy them now. And one of the other main deck creatures I want to talk about is actually a creature land, which is almost always just going to be a few raging ravines um i think that there used to be a stock three and i think it's going down a little bit right now i Mm -hmm. think raging ravine isn't quite as good as it used to be but when you do take over the game um you have your opponent top decking raging ravine gets huge fast you you had a plus one plus one counter every time you turn it sideways and it can definitely close a game really quickly also worth noting, I mentioned this in a past episode, multiple activations do stack for the 1-1 counter mm-hmm. because it's a creature that gains this ability so it can gain it multiple times. So this is a rare thing not going to happen too often, but keep in mind that a Jund opponent, if the game's going really late, that thing can get really big really quick. 
So some of the lesser used creatures are creatures that are played it maybe only in sideboards. We're going to talk about Tireless Tracker. So this is a card that's very near dear to my heart. It's mostly played in more black-green rock lists, but it is seeing its way over a little bit to Jun list. So those unfamiliar, it's two and a green for a 3-2. As an ability that whenever you play a land, you investigate, which creates a clue token. It's an artifact that you can sacrifice for two mana of any color to draw a card. And when you sacrifice a clue, you put a 1-1 counter on Tireless Tracker. So it has built-in card draw and buffing synergy. So this is a card that really shines in the mid-range matchup, where you're both in top deck mode and both grinding, and all of a sudden, if, if you rip a land, that's kind of good. Because not only are you drawing another card, your creature's growing because of it. So it really shines there when it's getting real grindy, real down to the wire. I personally like it. I played a build in paper that ran in two, and it definitely helped me beat both Boggles and Bant Spirits. So a good card. It can be a little slow. Uh, the person I brought the deck from Jesse said that she had replaced Dark Confidant with them. So I know that it's one more mana, but I think that the we have such an aggressive meta that maybe the ability to not have to lose life is worth it. Yeah, so to echo that somewhat, I did not have any tireless trackers in my 75, but I also borrowed my Jun deck from friend of the show, Joe. So thanks, Joe. Um, and we were talking about tireless tracker versus bob specifically and that was another card where i was like i wish all my bobs were tireless trackers and the person who let me the deck kind of felt like that might be a direction that he would want to go in eventually as well one of the reasons i like tireless tracker over bob it dodges or doesn't dodge but it, it can make the opponent on fatal push do a little bit more work to spend a fatal push on this it can dodge lightning bolt it usually dodges gut shot you know Things like that made me think that where the meta is at right now, Tireless Tracker can provide a bit more value than Bob can. I think you guys are both crazy. I mean, it's, a, it's, an, ex, it's an exceptionally different pace of cards. Like, Bob is good very early and that you're immediately creating value off it, and Tireless Tracker has a lot of setup cost. Like, the best thing you can do with Tireless Tracker is, like, turn four, you cast it and play a fetch land. And that's big game. But that is a very different pace of play than than Dark Confidant on turn two. But I do see the value of Tireless Tracker, and I do like her quite a bit. But I just don't, I can't see, it's, this is not a replacement type effect in my opinion. But the two slot is getting a little bit more gummed up, as we'll talk about later when we talk about Planeswalkers. Zach, I think there's also kind of one more card on the cusp of gen playability, right? Right, so people are, have been testing out Hex Drinker. It's been appearing in lists that have been doing well. I overheard an opponent at the MCQ mention that they like it as a turn one play early and a good mana sink. So it's a snake that starts as a green mana 1-1, one, one, has a level up mechanic at level three, gets 4-4 four, four protection from instance, and then all the way at the end is a 6-6 six, six with protection from everything. So it's good where if you can pump enough mana into it, it dodges a lot of spot removal out there and can eventually profitably block anything and close out games. I don't know the viability of this card overall, but it's worth mentioning because some people are running it. Yeah, I've heard people say they really love the card, and that's not really getting enough respect, but it's also not you know, making a huge impact on the archetype yet. So I think it remains to be seen. Moving on to the next category, we're going to talk about removal and include hand disruption in the removal tent. Sometimes people separate hand disruption and removal, but for the sake of time, we're going to consider all these cards, all these instants and sorceries in the same category. And the big ones are obviously Thoughtseize and Inquisition of Kozilek, the classic single black mana hand disruption spells. On the one hand, Inquisition of Kozilek doesn't cost any life and can swipe anything that's three CMC or fewer, but Thoughtseize can get 
anything and sometimes can be better in the late game at the cost of two life. Yeah, I mean, these are the classic turn one, turn two plays from Jun decks, right? They're, they really want to be able to disrupt the opponent's strategy, take those key cards. The concept, you know, here uh, from the classic articles from Reed Duke, you want to punch a hole in the opponent's hand, right? You want to take something that can set back your opponent, maybe take away their turn to play, maybe remove that mana dork or that other early threat that's going to allow them to ramp or to do something disruptive to you. You're going to take that key combo card out of their hand. And they're also giving value to your Tarmogoyf by frequently putting, you know, two cards in the graveyard right away, two different type, different card types. Yeah, I think these cards are one of the reasons why Jund and Midrange strategies used to play Surgical Extraction before every deck played Surgical Extraction because the one-two punch of Hand Disruption plus Surgical against combo decks can be often totally backbreaking. Another uh, single mana spell, of course, is the classic Lightning Bolt. Three damage for a single red to any target. It's always useful. It's always going to be a staple in Modern. Um, Jund is almost always going to run four of. There's not much else to say about Lightning Bolt. It's uh, always awesome. Yeah, Joe, who lent me the deck, said that this is one of your most important finishers in Jund. I didn't necessarily have the privilege to use it that way. I was kind of using it like a removal spell most often than not. But, you know, being able to get that last, you know, few points of damage can be the difference between, like, grinding out a few more turns or just winning out of nowhere. Totally agree. As someone who used to play a Scred, where Lightning Bolt's also a four of staple, It'll just randomly win you a game where your opponent's at six and then you hold on to one, then you rip one, and then it's, oh, I win. Or, you know, it can deal with problematic creatures, kill planeswalkers. It's just, it still is the best burn spell out there. Mm-hmm. So then next we have maybe the best one black mana removal spell out there in Fatal Push. So this is a card that when it was printed, it was clear to everyone right away, oh, hey, this is modern playable. It's one mana, hits a lot of creatures, easy to activate the increased ability with the revolt. Very good. So... In, uh, especially in Jund, where it's easy to activate the Revolt with, you know, Fetch Land and Heal Spellbomb or even the Horizon Lands, there are so many ways to activate Revolt that it's just so consistent and so very good. I found myself taking this out only against Boggles and Ad Nauseam and just leaving it in the rest of the time. It's great against Thing in the Ice and it even hits a Vegivine. For sure. Yeah, Fatal Push is definitely one of those spells we see not only in Jund but in other decks have a pretty high variability and how many copies you run depending on the metagame you're seeing so you know if there are a lot of creature smaller creature decks where a fatal push is going to be useful you're going to love running it if there's a lot of control that you're facing down or decks that have lots of recursive creatures you're not going to be super happy to be running fatal push against a deck that is you know recurring their blood gas from the yard so you might shave a few so that's one of the spells that gets back to what we talked about earlier where you want to look at your suite of cards you have available to you and think about, well, you know, am I going to run four of these just because it's a great spell, or I'm going to run two of these because the value of this spell is higher right now or lower right now? Moving on, we got a pair of very important removal spells, Assassin's Trophy and Abrupt Decay. Both of these are instants that cost a black and a green, but they operate pretty differently. Decay has been around for much longer and can destroy any lawn land permanent with CMC 3 or less. Trophy, however, much newer card, can destroy any permanent, but it gets the opponent an untapped, or I guess it gets the owner of the permanent an untapped basic land. So the flexibility of Trophy makes it 
one of the most important removal spells in Jun Suite. I think it gives it a little bit of game against some strategies that used to be more difficult. You know, Tron comes to mind as a really difficult deck for Jun, yeah. but, you know, a really well-timed Assassin's Trophy might be just enough to get there. Uh, worth noting, Abrupt Decay cannot be countered. Mm-hmm. So that's really important and a big part of why this spell can be played sometimes. If you're in a meta where you expect Chalice of the Void to be present and something you should be aware of, it's maybe worth, you know, shifting the numbers of an Abrupt Decay Assassin's Trophy in your 75 because you want Abrupt Decay to resolve. Yeah, for sure. I think uh, the addition of Assassin's Trophy, like Stan said, really, when this card was revealed, people freaked out. I mean, this pre-ordered is like $25 or so. People were just thinking, this is such a flexible spell. It's going to make black, green, mid-range decks, you know, get a huge boost, especially in modern, right? And while it has done that, the additional ramp that you do provide typically the opponent because you're removing their permanence can be challenging because you know you still are giving them a land and not only a land an untapped land yeah. so I, i've definitely been on the other side of an assassin's trophy where they gave me a land and they was able to fatal push something that you know they valued on the other side where you know, they removed a, a permanent i had it turned on revolt i used a you know my untapped black mana to to fatal push something so you know it's a small price to pay but it can be a big one as well yeah i i feel like if i had the option between the two uh, on a target permanent, I would always just choose Decay first, kind of like I'd always cast an Inquisition before uh, Thoughtseize, especially in the early game. Another powerful card that, once again, can be divided anywhere from two main deck, two sideboard, one and two, is Colgon's Command. So if, uh, if you're unfamiliar with this card, it's part of the command cycle of cards, where they have usually four choices to choose from, and you choose two of them. So this one is one, a black and a red, instant, choose two modes. And for that one, you can discard cards, you can deal damage to a target, return a creature from your graveyard to hand, destroy an artifact. Very good card. Very versatile. Oh, yeah. It's just a, it's just a default two for one. Exactly. So the whole thing is the, the modes, either you're blowing something up, you're getting graveyard recursion. No matter what you're doing, you're getting a two for one value. Personally, this is one of my favorite cards in general in modern. I'm really bummed out. I cannot play it in prison. I know there are black red prison lists, but I'm not going to buy black leaf cliffs so we can move on from that. <laughs> bought them. Yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things that costs three mana. It's just so expensive. You can't run a ton of them, but it does right. offer an inherent value in the card itself. Yeah, it's one of the sickest rips from Bloodbraid Elf as well. When oh, you Bloodbraid yeah. Elf into this and get like the three for one, it's just like, yeah, I, I've had someone, no joke, Bloodbraid Elf me, uh, Real Colgon's Command, blow up a Mindstone and kill my cough on the board when I was on Scred. So, yeah, it's just, oh, I can't. I've lost the game now. You, you did it. You done did it. Speaking of an all-for-one, the last spell we're going to talk about in this suite is Maelstrom Pulse. One black-green sorcery. Destroy, target, non-land permanent, and all of the permanents with the same name. That includes tokens. Yeah, this card used to be so flexible and powerful that it used to be even more popular and expensive than it is now. Nowadays, yeah, price wise. Yeah, nowadays it's a little bit more affordable, but the efficiency of trophy, I think, in part has taken Maelstrom Pulse down a peg. But I still had one in my sideboard. I've seen some people play it in their main decks. Um, a really flexible answer to just about anything uh, without really giving your opponent ramp that trophy does. Yeah, this card's been around for a while. It's super flexible. It's 
valuable to have access to one of typically, but it is three CMC and the format's very fast. So, you know, if things slow down again, I wouldn't be surprised to see one of be kind of default, at least in the main deck, but we'll see. Yeah, this is one of those cards that I think can be a liability sometimes if it's in the main, because if you rip this off of a Bloodbraid Elf, you might have no targets. Um, but I think out of the sideboard when you're bringing it in, it'll often be one of the best cards that you can bring in. For sure. Now that we're done with the spells and removal, um, we get to talk about the really fun cards. Uh, some of the cards that are, I think, bringing Jund back up to Tier 1 again. A Liliana of the Veil is one of my favorites. I've, I've cast more than a few of her. She's a one black black planeswalker, and she stood the test of time. She's been in modern for for forever she's always been super valuable she's always been super expensive um she enters the battlefield with three loyalty and it almost always results in some kind of two for one or more against your opponent so her plus one forces each player to discard a card and this ability sounds kind of silly right you're like well we're both discarding cards why is this good but this does a number of important things for you as the owner of liliana of the veil right so First thing first, it's taking up your Planeswalker towards an ultimate. So even if you are discarding a card as well, you are essentially you know, making a decision on what you can ditch, and it's an action at parity, but you're the player with the Planeswalker accruing value on the battlefield. Secondly, the plus one forces the opponent to play cards from their hand, otherwise they're going to lose the card to her plus in following turn. So this this makes them unable to do surprising things against you, like kind of when you're least expecting it, and forces them to act on the schedule that you are setting for them. And third, it plays really neatly into her her minus two ability by and doesn't allow your opponent to double spell on future turns so they're forced to play let's say they have a creature in hand that they just top decked they have to play it in order to not get discarded to the plus ability um, but if they play it into liliana then you can simply use her minus two edict ability to force the opponent to sacrifice that creature and then finally, her ultimate, her minus six is pretty interesting. You separate all the permanents the opponent controls into two piles, and then the opponent's forced to pick one of the two to keep while sacrificing the rest. So it's not quite a game ender like some ultimates, but it's still going to be a, a huge detriment to any opponent. They're not going to like having that go off against them. Yeah, they have to be super far ahead for it not to be a game ender usually. I think it sets your inevitability to like 90%. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. But I don't think Liliana the Veil has been around for a while, but the next Planeswalker is one that I think people are really freaking out about. Oh, do you mean ah. the only two mana walker ever printed in modern? <laughs> Which one's that, Zach? <laughs> That's Ren and Six. Oh my goodness, this card. I'm aware of Tybalt, it was a joke. <laughs> Ren and Six is a two mana Planeswalker for a red and a green and such a three loyalty. And all the abilities on this card are very good. And I think that maybe not not that we exactly undervalued this during our set review, but it has turned out to just be so much more consistent and so solid. So the plus one returns a land card from your graveyard to your hand. This is very good in Jund because the high amount of fetch lands, the horizon lands, the ones that either tap one mana and sack to draw a card or add mana to, at the cost of one life, or even the cycling lands like Baron Moor and Forgotten Cave are worth it with this card. Also, there's a synergy of cards like Ghost Quarter, where you can repeatedly destroy your opponent's lands. Finally, the ultimate, minus seven, you create an emblem that gives instant sorcery cards in your graveyard to retrace. 
and your trace allows you to recast the card by discarding a land card from your hand in addition to paying the mana cost. But it doesn't exile, so you can continually retrace the same card. Yeah, so the land loops that Zach alluded to, I think that's pretty much the dream with Ren and Six. I found like being able to replay utility lands or just making every land drop was much more useful than the minus ping ability. Um, Ghost Quarter in my deck was a one of out the sideboard. I'm pretty sure I only brought it in against Tron. So sometimes finding that single Ghost Quarter can be hard. But even so, being able to, you know, cash in multiple Baron Moors, cash in multiple Nurturing Peatlands in a single game usually felt wildly powerful. And this felt like probably the best two drop in the deck, even with Goyf and Tireless Tracker, or rather Goyf and Bob in there as well. Yeah. I mean, just getting lands back is really powerful. You always make your land drops. Um, pinging things can be super powerful, especially in combination with, you know, uh, just combat, onboard combat. You're like, well, I can finish something off or I can make something not really be a profitable block anymore. I've combined it with another Planeswalker we're going to talk about next and Liliana the Last Hope just for some double pinging power. That was pretty awesome. You can do things even like ping with a Renin 6, cast another Renin 6, and ping again to take, you know, two toughness off of something. Um, you know, there's, it's just super flexible. People are still very afraid of it. It's a huge lightning rod. People are attacking into it um, very liberally when I was playing it. They would point burn removal at it. They would point creature attacks at it because they do not want that accruing value with a plus especially. Absolutely. I found that one of my opponents definitely respected Red and Six too much and were attacking them when I they, they weren't going to kill it and that damage definitely would have added up and it killed me. And because they attacked a Red and Six and eventually killed it, I had enough life to eventually retake the game back. So I know that is a, a small sample size, but I feel like Red and Six, while you do need to respect it, isn't, you know, kill on sight, IMO. No, I don't think so either. I think it's one of those cards that you have to think about how much damage you're putting into it as the opposing player. You know, how much of a risk am I really at if this thing gets close to an ultimate? I mean, is retrace going to really be that bad for me right now? And, you know, it still takes a lot of ticks for the card right. to get up to that. I would have loved to get a retrace emblem. I never got to. I was working toward it periodically because I feel like in a deck like Jund, where your non-creature spells are so useful, it's pretty insane. Right. Have either of you ever pulled it off? I had it and I was going to do it and my opponent saw it and they took away my ability to do it because they conceded. Aww. <laughs> At that point, I would just say, please. <laughs> but I have a Colgun's command I'm going to recast. <laughs> Stan, what's our uh, last walker that we typically see play in Jund? Yeah, she's a bit less popular, but she's definitely earned a place in the deck historically. And that's Liliana, the last hope. One black black for a three loyalty walker. Her plus gives up to one target creature minus two minus one until the next turn. Note, it's not until end of turn, which I think is a pretty powerful effect that sometimes people fail to notice. Mm -hmm. Likewise, she has a minus two ability that puts the top two cards of your library into the graveyard and then allows you to return a creature card from the yard back to your hand. And then finally, her totally game-ending ultimate, minus seven, you get an emblem with, at the beginning of your end step, create X, two, two black zombie creature tokens, where X is two plus the number of zombies you control. 
this rarely is relevant. She's another lightning rod. But uh, if you ever get that emblem, you're going to win the game. Unless you lose the turn after you make the emblem. Because right, exactly. it's, it's insane. It just overruns the board practically immediately. So generally, uh, Liliana the Last Hope is a sideboard card. She comes in against decks like humans, elves, sometimes spirits, zoo maybe. Ideally, it's against small creature strategies, but it can do a lot of work in grindy games. If you're plussing her with no target, sometimes you still want to have like a nice threat to present to your opponent because that ultimate is so backbreaking. Takes a while to get there, but if you're controlling the game, you know, by other means, it'll do the job just fine. Yeah, I love Liliana the Last Hope in a lot of ways. I mean, her plus is just so easy to use, doesn't really re- even require a target at all, and just marches her up towards this ultimate that just, you know, finishes a game off. And, you know, you can combine it now with Ren and Six as well, like I said. I think she does a lot. It's she's great in just longer, grindier games. So now that we've talked about practically every non-land card in the Jund main deck and sideboard, we want to talk a bit about how you should play against it. Because if your meta is anything like my meta and Zach's, you're probably going to start seeing a ton of mid-range. Yesterday, Zach and I went to the LGS. There were 31 players in the event. 10 of them, including us, were on Jund. Which, honestly, I feel like that was unprecedented for my experience at Dice Dojo. That's otherworldly, but I mean, that's kind of, I think, uh, mid-range decks, especially when they're good, are a like a local game store grinder's paradise. Like People love feeling like they have agency. They love feeling like they're making decisions. They love showing off their awesome decks. You know, I knew a guy who played fully foiled out Jund at one of the Chicago gaming stores before I moved. And it's, it's, a, it's a great deck that you're going to need to know how to play against, besides just playing Tron, right? So I think one of the things you really have to be able to do to beat Jund is fundamentally try to not allow them to generate a lot of extra value out of their cards. And that's really challenging to do because so many of the cards do this just inherently by existing. Like when you cast a a Bloodbraid Elf, you're going to get another card cascading off it, right? But the more you can do to try to avoid allowing them to, let's say, keep their Planeswalkers on the battlefield for a long period of time, you don't allow their slow grinding creatures to really grow and get out of hand, the better off you're going to be when you face on this deck so i think shane was kind of joking when he mentioned tron but that is one of the decks that i have found and i think has been historically true to be pretty favored against mid-range especially jund in general kind of just goes over the top the removal doesn't always line up super great Uh, they only have so many assassins trophies and so and like i mean i only had one ghost quarter you know sometimes uh jund will have fulminator mages in the side but eventually Tron just sort of gets there. And that's a matchup we saw on camera play out at the MC in Barcelona. One of the things I thought was interesting, Jerry mentioned this in the latest arena deck lists where they were talking about uh, Jund, which Jerry chose to play this past weekend, I believe, was he was like, I'm not going to run any Fulminator Mages. He's like, if I'm going to, if I'm going to play a deck where I have to play Fulminator Mage as like a land removal spell, I don't want to play that deck. I'm just going to have to dodge the matchup. And I think that's an interesting perspective because you are playing a, you know, a three mana land removal spell essentially. And, and one of the reasons that Jund is so poor against Trond is that the clock is just so slow. 
compared right. to other you know modern aggressive decks right now and it just lets tron set itself up to play those huge over-the-top spells that jun just can't deal with like you mentioned stan Right. In addition to the aggression that Tron sort of brings, burn decks and other aggro decks are also pretty good against Jund as well. We haven't really touched on Jund's mana base because it can vary so much from deck to deck and because of what mana symbols you need, etc. But in general, you're running a lot of fetches and shocks, and you're also running oh, yeah. the new Horizon lands, which hurt you as well. So in general, Jund is doing a lot of damage to itself to where I feel like as a burn player, I'm excited, right? Like... I there are two games where I had to fetch and shock into a thought seize in order to oh, yeah. set up my turn two play. And all of a sudden, I'm at 15, and you see a handful of bolts. It's, oh, <laughs> okay, I'll take one of these. It's your turn. Yeah, Jund, I mean, I got steamrolled by Burn playing as Jund. Just, it's it's very hard, even when you try to set up things like with Collective Brutality, where you're going to you know play three of those in your sideboard, and you're not running main deck Dark Confidant anymore, and you shave your thought seizes, you, know, you still have a of a painful mana base that you can't always predict what you're going to draw in your opening hands. And you might have to do that fetch shocking just to set up some blockers. And it's not a great spot to be in. Yeah. So I used to love playing elves against Jund. I always found that go wide strategies in general line up well against Jund's one for one strategy. But oh, yeah. nowadays, I don't know if go wide small creature strategies are all that great because of plague engineer. And while Maelstrom Pulse used to be good, but not great, you know, if you have a variety of permanents with different names, Plague Engineer will just, you know, name a creature type and sometimes wipe the board by himself. Yeah, absolutely. So I think really something actionable we can give people listening to this and something that's really helpful with this is, as we mentioned, Jund is a slow deck. It's grinding out value over time. So if you're placing, if you're facing Jund, something you should know is you need to go fast. And if you can pivot into that role or act in that way you want to start playing aggressively because unless you're blue white control the longer the game goes on the more jund has a chance of winning sure and some of the ways that we talked about fighting jund are cards that take advantage of a long game right so we talked about tireless tracker where if that sticks on the battlefield where if you if they do not have removal that can deal with it you're able to just sort of incrementally create value just by that card existing on the battlefield. I mentioned Lingering Souls earlier, which is a card that can pretty quickly generate, you know, four small bodies where the the point removal of Jund is not going to have a great time and they're, you know, they're digging for that plague engineer that we talked about. There's a uh, you know season pyromancer can bring along two tokens for the ride. So things that create small amounts of value over a long period of time on your end when you're playing against Jund are what you're looking for or things like uh, virtual card advantage where we said, you know, there's things like blood moon which can attack the painful uh, shock-based mana base. It can attack the you know, New Horizon lands that it's trying to run right now. There's f- as few basics as ever in a Jun shell. Yeah, and I think it's also likewise important to be conservative with your removal spells occasionally and knowing where they need to be spent. So for instance, if you have a Fatal Push, maybe spending it on a Goyf isn't the right call because Goyf doesn't have Trample. But, you know, if they run out a Bob or a Tireless Tracker, you know, that might be the better spell to target removal at because that's what's going to get them that value that Shane's talking about. Yeah, one of the things that I've been picking up as I watch more coverage of better players than me and now that Jund is on camera more is that it's really about getting value out of your cards. And like Stan just mentioned, if you take out the things that are 
getting them accruing value over multiple turns. And a Tarmogoyf's not really doing that unless it's attacking your life total very aggressively. That's the kind of thing you need to think about is if I was a Jun player, what would I want to have stick on the battlefield? And it might not be a Tarmogoyf. Yeah, unfortunately, Jun doesn't have the conditions that like Grixis Shadow used to have where they ran like one or no basic mountains. I think most Jun lists that I see have at least one of each basic land type. If not two, yeah. If not two. But Field of Ruin, I think, still does work. You know, if you've got multiple Field of Ruins and you can force them into only playing their basics, sometimes that'll make them really hard-pressed to double spell because they don't have the lands to cast some of their really greedy, you know, double color spells. So what's Jun going to be doing against you from their sideboard? I mean, it's just like the main decks, right? The sideboards are super diverse. You probably just want to think about, you know, the type of cards they're going to be bringing in, right? Yeah, and they're going to bring in literally anything and everything it takes right. to win, even if that means eight to ten cards out of the sideboard. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I found myself bringing in eight cards plenty of times. Like, <laughs> oh, like, me too. That was my default. And like, uh, yeah, yeah. And like uh, with Bono Red Prison, because you have the wish board, sometimes I'm only bringing in two or three. And here it's just like, is this right? Nine cards? This can't. This can't be correct, but it, it was. shows the flexibility of like you know this pile of cards type strategy is that when you don't have a really linear game plan, it allows you to be flexible, and that's what Jun can capitalize on, right? Right, and exactly. And one of the things that they they can do from the sideboard is land destruction. Yeah. So Stan already mentioned Field of Ruin. We mentioned Ghost Quarter and Full Moon Mage as well. So if you're a deck that is trying to use lands to win, maybe say Valakut or get value out of your lands, even something like Blue Eye Control. Expect cards like this. I would brain full meter mage against blue control for sure. Yeah. Taking them off a color like that or blowing up a colonnade is huge. Also, you kind of want to overwhelm their removal as well. So the more threats you bring in, the better. I would typically bring in Fulminator Mage against any removal-based strategy, simply because you want to have a threat stick at the end. And in the in a, in a pinch, you can blow up a really important land. You can take them off red, you can take them off uh, a valuable color, you can kill a creature land. So Jund also has access to some of the absolute best artifact and enchantment hate in the format, even though it doesn't run white. It's got Ancient Grudge. It can play shenanigans. We're seeing Force of Vigor and Collector Oof, two Modern Horizon cards, come in. Some of the other examples you might see are even like Nature's Claim, Naturalize. Those are less popular. Usually the Jund player has better options at, at hand. But the fact that they've got three colors especially one of them being green gives them a lot of flexibility so if you're running an artifact or enchantment based deck make sure you have ways to protect yourself and your permanents against jun's removal suite for those permanent types especially absolutely and a small note on collector oof is that it shuts down all artifact activated abilities including mana ones where in the past we've seen cards that do things like uh pithing needle or spyglass that shut off activated abilities don't affect mana ones oof does so if you're in a deck that is trying to make mana from mana rocks, be aware of that card. Yeah. I mean, other things that Jun is going to bring in against, say, small creature decks or go wide strategies are going to be things like Damnation and right now, especially Anger of the Gods. You know, that uh, is cheaper and it also exiles uh, if, it, if it kills things off after doing three damage to them. Um, one of the things, too, there's, there's sometimes some more Planeswalkers, right, guys? Yeah, so Jund is seeing cards like Chandra Torch of Defiance occasionally. Vraska, Queen of the Golgari, that's a new walker that they're starting to adopt as well. Ashok Dream Render is a really versatile sideboard card that sometimes Jund is using to shut down decks like Phoenix. Other graveyard strategies or decks that are fetching aggressively. 
Yeah, I personally played Vraska to great success this weekend. I had one in my sideboard, and I would bring it in to deal with, you know, pesky enchantments, artifacts, because her downtick deals with, it's, you know, it's abrupt decay. It's very good. It, it was amazing. I really enjoyed her. So in addition to these powerful walkers, Jund also can have, you know, maybe random or unseen life gain spells on the side. I know that whether Storm has been popping up, uh, Collector Brutality, and then uh, Kalitas seems to play as well. So it's one of those things where, honestly, if your deck is really focused on one game plan, you should be prepared for Jund to maybe have a couple sideboard cards for you. Yeah, Jund does not have any non-answers. Like, it, it's not... it's. It's not vulnerable to any strategies. It almost always has an answer for practically every strategy. So don't think you're going to get a free win unless you're on Tron. So Stan, after all this discussion, um, you were, I think, the, the most new to playing a strategy like this. What did you think about things? Like, what, 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 were your, what was your thought process and how did you feel about playing Jund? Okay, so here's my kind of disorganized stream of conscious approach to what it was like playing Jund after being previously an Is It Mage. Okay. I mentioned earlier, I did not like playing Goyf. And I felt like one of the biggest challenges for me was assessing which matchups Tarmogoyf is actually good in. You know, sometimes I would side out one or several, if not all of them. Other times I would keep them in, perhaps when I should have taken them out. Sometimes it was hard for me to evaluate where is Goyf good on turn two versus Bob or Renin six. So it felt like the answers to some of these questions were really matchup dependent, and it illustrates how important it is to have a ton of experience with a strategy like Junt and understanding your role across a variety of other strategies. Uh, I mean, yeah, I hear that. I guess I never really thought about it. I mean, you know, I, I, I guess I didn't think about the the trouble of playing Goyf like you did. I mean, I just, you just run it out, you know what I mean? And you hope that it's big and you try to you know, play in a way where you're making Goyf large with your hand disruption and your removal spells and things like that. And just uh, hope that it sticks on the board late in the game and you beat down with it. Yeah. So one of the other thoughts that I had, um, Junt in a way reminded me of my experience playing blue white oh, control. This guy comes around talking about blue white as a mid range style deck. No, it's because Jund is a control deck. Mm -hmm. Stan, don't give him With better finishers. Don't don't, don't let him have the satisfaction. So what I'm getting to is that, similar to Jund, Blue-White is a deck that's got powerful Planeswalkers, a lot of removal spells, and like counter spells in the form of disruption. And what I alluded to earlier, wherein Jund is a deck that you've got to play a lot to understand how your matchups work and which cards are good against which matchups, I kind of felt myself wondering, why would I play Jund? Or why would anyone play Jund over blue-white control, since both decks are similar in that they take a lot of practice to be good at? And which deck is worth the time commitment to master? I mean, you're playing threats as Jund. You know, you're definitely like you said. It's blue eye control is not a is not a mid range deck as much as I'd like to pretend that it is. But Jund, you know, at least you're offering threats and you're offering a flexible amount of threats. That's also proactive versus blue white control's reactiveness. Right, it's the difference between uh, destroying a resolved creature versus countering a spell in the stack, right? Mm-hmm. And they they sort of seem similar at first glance, where you're, you're both denying them a resource, ideally one for one. But getting in front of somebody versus dealing with what they've actually played is a little different. I agree. And when we refer to Jund as a proactive strategy, though, like we did also say it's a very slow deck. And I generally expect my proactive strategies to have more reliable clocks. And... Tarmogoyf will get there, but Tarmogoyf will just die to a fatal push. Mm-hmm. That's, for, that's for sure. So one of the other things that 
uh, we talked about is I sideboarded aggressively. Totally common for me to put eight or nine cards from my board into the deck for games two and three. And I thought that this was both a blessing and a curse. Because sometimes I had to ask, when is Bolt good? When is Liliana the Veil good? And because it had so many moving pieces, I felt that this made the deck really challenging to just kind of pick up. Even though I knew what all the cards were and I played against all of them, their their power level and effectiveness was constantly relative to the board state and my opponent. Stan, I totally agree with that point. I've been playing Modern for five years. I've been playing Midrange for most of that time. And I've been playing against Jund for most of that time as well. So I thought I'd be so prepared, but I, I just felt like, whoa, I am not prepared to play this deck. Like I need so like I need months of rep. I need totally like to read some guides on this. Because we talk about it as just a quote unquote collection of the best cards, it can seem like it's so easy to pick up and play, but it's really not. There are so many decision trees, there are so many ways to evaluate threats, there are so many ways to look at someone's hand and go, what do I take out of here with Thoughtseize, etc. So the deck seems deceptively simple because of the lack of maybe cohesion or theme, but there's so much going on and this deck was very hard to play. I personally, I am not going to go back to it anytime soon, but I respect those that play it and it is a commitment. Oh yeah. Financial and mental. It's very challenging. I mean, it's one of those things that where you have so many options, like we've mentioned, and you have to generate value from your cards as a Jun player. And it's very easy to invalidate that value that you're generating. So just something as simple as playing a scavenging ooze into a lightning bolt before you can generate some value off of it, or playing a tireless tracker before you can generate value off of that, or not really thinking about how to properly use your Liliana of the Veil or your Renin 6 can really not allow you to maximize the value of the cards that are in there. And that will definitely lose you some percentage points in playing the deck. Absolutely. I, th- I think just to sum it up really nicely, the deck doesn't play itself and doesn't want to play itself because there's no cohesion or theme. Once again, you have to make this work and it works well when you make it work, but you have to be on top of it. And if you go into autopilot mode, you're probably going to lose, quite frankly. Yeah. Next time I'm playing against someone who's on Jund, I might find a polite and subtle way to ask them how long they've been on this deck. And if I find out that they're new to them, I might uh, breathe a sigh of relief. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, so that wraps up our very thorough, our very hard-fought dive down into Jund. I, for one, am excited to never cast a Goyf again. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we've got a really fun listener question. You won't want to miss it. Stay with us. So this week's listener question comes from patron Fipples, who asks, how many matches do you feel it takes before you are comfortable with a deck? So this is coming from, it's a personal anecdote. I, this is my experience and how I relate to the game. So it honestly, it took me three years of Scred to feel like I was good, good, good with Scred. And this is before I was playing Magic Online. This was really before I was going to LGS's a ton. This is mostly playing games with friends and reading online articles, etc. But I think it takes at least a year, in my opinion. It takes a ton of reps. It takes a ton of effort to be what good with the deck. Comfortable is different. I think maybe comfortable with the deck could be a few months, but to get really good with the deck is a long time. I would say, honestly, three months of reps for me to be really comfortable and making good decisions, but to be good as a whole other beast. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about Dredge in this case because Dredge operates so differently um, than many other decks. And I felt comfortable 
with playing dredge, you know, somewhat quickly, especially after playing in paper, because you have to think about the triggers and the physical arrangement of the cards and things like that. But like you said, Zach, comfortable versus good is huge. And it can be, you know, a 10% swing you know you know you know i love putting completely arbitrary numbers on win percentages <laughs> right but i mean you could be like you know to to be good at the deck and to really understand how to win with it is very different than saying like okay i feel comfortable playing this i feel like i'm not going to miss my triggers and it kind of gets at a definition of what comfortable is for you right and one of the things i'm thinking about is, is how similar one deck is to another right so Stan, you were saying, like, I, I imagine for you that playing like a, a go wide creature trigger strategy from all your reps with um, elves might be something that you're familiar with, or a, you know, sort of a, an arc light Phoenix to a uh, red based mono red Phoenix um, is somewhat similar because you have to think about some of the same things like maximizing value of your spells. Yeah, I think you're onto something. Uh, a, an anecdote I have recently is that Friend of the show, Ian, recently put together Blue Red Delver and Legacy, and he let me play with that. And after playing Is It Phoenix and getting used to Force of Negation and all these cantrips and then being handed a deck that's got Force of Will and better cantrips, it was a pretty simple translation to figure out how that deck worked and like have a lot of fun with it. But when I first picked up Is It Phoenix, it took me like a couple months to feel like I was actually oh, yeah. good with it. And then it like it was the first deck that ever won me cash at a competitive REL event. but for a while, I was just like bombing at the LGS with it and really struggling with right. it online. So having some amount of reps, but also understanding the format and like knowing what your opponent's decks are on and being able to make really quick mulliganing decisions, I think is really vital to being good at modern. And that's a whole other discussion that we're not going to have today, but I didn't want that to go unspoken. Yeah. Wow. That was a quick wind down. We're running out of time, so I'm going to wrap up this show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use iTunes, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in modern, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email the dive down at gmail.com. I know we all take time to respond to listener questions and email so those aren't always public but we really like helping people out with their deck choices and questions that they have about the, the format so don't hesitate to send us emails yeah please likewise if you see us on reddit feel free to send us a message there as well remember to join our patreon we're super excited to interact with all of our patrons in the super secret slack channel we've been really thrilled that we've been meeting all of our patreon stretch goals so we love the support we've gotten. We always welcome new patrons. You can find us at patreon.com slash the dive down. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and jund them out! Maybe that's what your cat is meowing at. It feels a presence. It feels a cold rush go through the room. What did I tell you while we were there? I told you Shane's house was haunted. You said that.
you said that, and it was based on nothing, but maybe you were right accidentally. Mm, it wasn't based off nothing. I don't just say things. It was a vibe I had. Shane's house, 100% haunted. The city of Denver, 100% haunted. Unbelievably haunted. How many miners came there with nothing but the clothes on their back and died destitute in the streets? A thousand dead miners haunt Shane's house. 